Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by creating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I am Ellie from Evolution Recruitment Solutions and today I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. Perfect. Okay, so the podcast topic today that we are discussing is automation and AI in the NHS. Um, Naveed, if we could start with you introducing yourself, please. Yeah, my name is Naveed Munshi and uh, I've been working in the NHS for a number of years uh, in the RPAS sector. I've been working since about three years now. Uh, worked in Northampton uh, doing the RPA projects and uh, currently now working in Croydon University Hospital uh, doing similar RPA projects uh, amongst other uh, infrastructure and telecoms projects. But uh, RPA is close to my heart and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be joining this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Sajal, over to you. Hi, I'm Sigal. I'm the Director of AI, Data and Digital Innovation at Geister Thomas, but I also work across uh, King's College Hospitals and um, King's College London, and I'm running some um, national programs. One of them is the AI Centre for Value-Based Healthcare, uh, which focuses, uh, it uh, delivers uh, AI technology and medical imaging um, in 10 NHS trusts uh, across the country uh, to do with um, AI deployment engine, which uh, synchronises apps um, for medical imaging and a uh, federated learning interoperability platform that looks at um, data use um, uh, in multiple hospitals for research uh, without the data leaving the trust. So it's all um, uh, compatible with uh, IG and security uh, and a number of other tools uh, that do uh, natural language processing and machine learning. Um, so that's in a nutshell. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Lisa? If you could introduce yourself, please. Yeah, good afternoon, everybody. My name's Lisa Whitaker. I'm the Automation Services Team Manager at Mid and South Essex NHS Foundation Trust. Um, I have only been with the NHS for just over two years, two and a half years, with a um, background actually in the private sector, um, in operational management, um, process improvement, lean methodology, um, operational consulting. And then at the end of my journey, um, it was to do with RP. So this role came up with Mid and South Essex and I joined in change management actually um, and I'm responsible for launching the whole RPA programme across our trust um, and within the last year or so I've moved into digital and actually I now head up the whole of the, the team delivering um, the automation um, pipeline and I report into the head of automation and um AI and we're looking actually expanding what we do away from just RPA and looking at other automation tools as well and other offerings um, and part of what will come up in the discussion today I'm sure is we are in the midst of a very very large digital transformation program so it's kind of quite challenging to link what we're doing with automation in amongst that bigger piece of work. Thank you Lisa. And Jonathan? Hello I'm Jonathan McKee and I'm the Head of Information Governance at Moorfields Eye Hospital. I've been working in the NHS since 1991, started out as a nurse and went into management some years later and have got very interested in the governance side of operational 
and strategic management and came into uh, information governance about 10 years ago. Um, very committed to expanding understanding and education. And I'm also the president of the medicine and society section at the Royal Society of Medicine. And I also co-chair the London Information Governance Forum. So very interested in today's topic, particularly as here at Moorfields, we're starting to look at AI uh, practical applications and doing some research around that too. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, okay, so if we get started with the questions then, um, so Naveed, we will um, start with you. So your question was, how does one balance out the requirement to draft a business case to secure NHS England funding, visit, visit, detailed requirements, gathering exercise? Um, so yep. you just give us a bit of context as to yeah. why you want to discuss. Yeah, so uh, what I've seen in, in working in the NHS Trust earlier with, um, with, with projects in, in general has been uh, the rush to obviously get the funding for obvious reasons and uh, getting getting a business case, which is half-baked and, and uh, getting getting the funding, but uh, and, and then you're getting all of that, all of that funding um, and then you're securing the, uh, the, you're procuring the supplier, all of that procurement happens, but you, you, you come to know that, you know, you don't have the, um, the requirements. Um, I.e., example, you don't have the the correct automations to process. For example, there's no frequency for those uh, automations. Um, the uh, you know the process owners have not been bought in, into the into the entire project. They don't even know what RPA is when they've been signed up for this. So um, there's a lot of lots of hurdles that you encounter, mm. and and then you ask yourself, was it really worth it to get that funding? Uh, and then you're you're ending up uh, shelving some of the process processes in in the you know in the in the journey. Uh, was it really worth it? Should we have had a thought and uh, maybe had a detailed requirements? But then I, I do get that you have to get the funding as well. So you have to really balance it out. And that's a really difficult balance. I think one has to maintain and uh, in order to get the projects uh, with the benefits that you want to achieve. So that was my question to the audience is, um, you know, that's always going to be a, a gas 22, I'm afraid, uh, for me. As far as I've noticed, it's it's not an easy one to balance. Thank you, Naveed. Um, Lisa, you're nodding your head quite a lot though. What are your thoughts <laughs> on that? <laughs> yeah, the reason I'm nodding my head quite a lot to that is I joined after our business case had been created and approved and funding um, successfully obtained for the RPA journey within MSE. And I think it's very difficult because you're building a business case on the unknown on something that you know isn't actually within your trust potentially at, at that moment in time so all you can do is base what you want to do on what's known so for example we had input from another center of excellence at another trust on the types of automations that they had delivered um, their time savings that were relatable to those um, particular processes and the and then you know looked at across MSE well what was the scale of our operation in comparison um, did we have similar processes and then assumptions was made were made around benefits and also um, how much resource was required from an RPA solution both as a team but also from virtual workers and platform related support um, and then once we got onto our journey what we actually found was that the original content to that business case didn't really tally with what we could deliver um, particularly within our outpatient space um, so we are delivering the original 
scope, if you like, but minus some things and with some adjustments. We had to rebuild the forecasted benefits around the actual situation we were in. Um, And off the back of that, we have then reached out within the trust um, to get other streams and pipelines of work which are lined up uh, ready for us to start work on those to drive the benefits home so you're absolutely right you know it's a very very difficult thing to get the benefits case um, delivered in the first place without actually doing the deep dive into it to make sure it's realistic Um, yeah quite a challenge for sure thank you Lisa Sagal over to you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, we uh, I think we all probably experienced similar things, but what we've been able to do is um, we've built actually a tool that enables um, to look at a large cohorts of large data sets uh, for unstructured data. So uh, from the electronic health records, um, actually get the concepts right for clinical coding, for example, um, to be able to automatically code. Uh, so we've been able to prove that um, by um, some grant funding investment into that tool to show um, by doing that we actually could save quite a lot in fact uh, millions of pounds worth uh, by automating some of these codes and um, and building that kind of um, uh, data accuracy uh, by training the models uh, of of, um, of this tool is called Coxtac which uses elastic search and natural language processing um, and what we've been doing as well is um, we've been publishing these use cases so whether they're operational uh, activity that saves that money that then goes back to investment uh, or also in terms of research and population health management and other use cases and we've been sharing them with other NHS trusts and in fact we've been working with other NHS trusts uh, and in fact in other countries to be able to uh, to help them write the business cases and then um, get the investment and deploy this kind of technology so we kind of almost um, uh, kind of uh, developed an arm that can can deliver that in other NHS trusts. But I think that kind of, uh, luckily for us in the NHS, we have that kind of, um, you know, we're not competitors. We can share uh, the knowledge, we can share some of the resources and indeed um, kind of maximize, maximize the value. Uh, and so I think that that's really, really important that we learn from one another and that we share that kind of um, case for investment because there are already some really excellent use cases out there of, of that type of automation and um, and uh, uh, AI working in, in NHS trust in a variety of use cases that can um, um, really save both in terms of money and resources, um, but also obviously also in terms of diagnosis and, 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 and clinical care. So I think um, it's really great to see that so many NHS trusts are doing, um, you know, are investing in this at the same time. Thank you. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? I think the the a lot of proposals around at the moment are talking about innovations at the cutting edge, and they refer to processes that have not been quantified and costed today. And it sh- the owners surely should not be on the innovator to try and pr- pr- produce costings for processes that are not costed today. What you should be clear on, and this goes for all audiences, is your features of your proposal, what benefits that bring to the organisation and what advantages they bring to your patients. And as part of your bigger engagement piece and your transparency work, talk to your clinicians, get them on board, 
talk to your patients, get them on board. If your clinicians are with you and your patients are with you, who's going to be against you? Thank you, Jonathan. Does anyone have anything else to add to that before we move on to the next question? No. Okay, perfect. Um, so, Sagal, we'll go over to your question. Um, so, the you asked around the reality of implementing AI and automation in the NHS with examples of key barriers and opportunities. If you could just give us a bit of context. So it's very similar, I guess, to the previous question. It, it's a continuation of that in a way that um, uh, we, we, we're all kind of saying that this is quite new technology and the skills and capabilities are not necessarily built into NHS trust organisations, let alone, I mean, it's um, even in, in the private sector, you know, this is a fairly new um you know, field. And what we're also finding is that the recruitment and retention in this space is very competitive. So if you want to get data scientists with really great capabilities, uh, it's very competitive in terms of salaries you have to offer and um, um, and and um, and what we we've been doing um, with these um, with these projects is we've been training people from the ground up and especially um, medical people and, and clinicians who have uh, some data science interest or um, or skills. Um, and we've been um, sort of they've been learning on the job and getting those skills, which is really, really important because um, healthcare data is very um, specific. Uh, and quite often you need to marry up a data scientist together with a clinician that really understands the disease type. You can imagine that uh, uh, cancer algorithms will be very different to uh, atrial fibrillation and very different again to fetal medicine, etc. Uh, so each of those fields um, uh, requires really specialist skills. And what we've done in our projects that are um, for AI is um, you we've um, partnered with, um, so as part of the AI Centre, again, this is through funding through Innovate UK and Office of Life Sciences and um, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, we've uh, had 24 projects that um, married up a data science lead from the academic side of things with a clinical lead uh, from the NHS with a uh, partner in technology that is a, a private uh, sector partner to be able to work on these pathways and really find new ways of uh, using um, AI and data science to to improve the pathway. Um, so um, so th there's lots of um, examples of how that might work. But I think then embedding that capability within the NHS is going to really require um, training a new generation of, of clinical people, um, medical physicists, uh, biomedical engineers, etc. Um, the good news is we have amazing people, amazing skills, and we have medical students who are really, really um, enthused uh, and so it's really about how do we find ways to work with uh, private and academic sectors uh, embedded in the NHS and kind of all of us pushing towards um, that that really really massive impact it can make in healthcare. Um, over to other other guys for for their thinking on this. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan what are your thoughts? I think the thing to bear in mind when making these proposals is that your your recipients and the people who actually approve it aren't going to be experts either. So keep the language straightforward and simple. One thing I see in information governance is people conflate and therefore confuse processing with processes. Processing I think about in the legal data protection context 
and processes. I'm thinking about transactions in the organisational context. They're quite different things uh, and I often see them a bit confused and um, that can't be helpful when you're trying to get buy-in on your proposal. So that would be one thing I would suggest. And, and as I alluded to before, when you're talking to your stakeholder groups, your clinicians and your patients, give some examples of use cases of what you're going to change. So population health is something that we all hear about. You mentioned it. It's in the long term plan. Population health is not a use case. Pro population health is a purpose. It's a technique we use to process data. Uh, the use cases that arise from population health might be to improve diabetes care. They might be to improve uh, long term health conditions for the elderly and, and all sorts of things those that make it real make it make it so people can understand what what benefits they're getting and i think that you'll find that really helpful and then it'll be really easy for your information governance colleagues to make an assessment of what you're doing and get that through real quick thank you jonathan uh lisa yeah um Interesting. Key barriers and opportunities for me that they, they sort of sit on this on a almost like a balancing scale. Um, so I've alluded it, to it before. We're going through a very large digital transformation program when we've merged three trusts into one. It, you won't be surprised to know that each of those sites had their own um, processes, the variations of processes, systems, and everything else. So that that's the big part of our digital transformation program and we with automation are sitting kind of alongside that um, so in terms of barriers what we're finding is that we already have over a hundred digital projects in our in our pipeline excluding automation um, and we have 60 to deliver within this financial year and it's kind of working out where the um, automation opportunities come and where they fit within those digital opportunity, these digital programs that are running already. So we have set ourselves up as part of the demand board so that we're having all of our opportunities reviewed at the same time. Um, and we have clinicians as part of that. We have operational people part of that governance, all, all of the relevant areas. And what we have to do is have a look at, well, is this a short term benefit? Will it be replaced by our new one EPR? Is it something that actually we want to do because it's going to drive a big benefit, even though it is going to re be replaced because we know it is a short term benefit? But Or is it actually, no, there's nothing in the new plan that will rectify that and we need to do that? Or is there a completely different um, system or application that will do that better than automation? So we, we have a very big challenge um within the area in within the team just to make sure we're doing the right thing at the right time um, and a lot of the the barriers that are associated with that as you can imagine is that the smes within the clinical and operational areas are already engaged in a lot of transformational programs so um it's making sure we're not burning out those people that we've got the right people engaged and from an opportunity point of view this is where I say it's a bit of a scale if they are already involved in some of the other transformational projects can we piggyback onto that can we get any benefit from working alongside them glean anything that they have done whether it be I don't know process mapping or systems information that we could use and pull into our program so that we're not having to duplicate effort for the SMEs who we know are already really busy. So, you know, there is a lot of barriers and opportunities at the same time, but it's being really clear about which one's which and, and how to make best use of those and do the right thing. Thank you, Lisa. 
Naveed, what are your thoughts? I think I've, uh, Jonathan and, and Lisa have captured pretty much uh, what I wanted to say, but I'll add that I think the requirements is, is, is key, getting the right process owners and, and they understand what they're getting into because majority of the times I've noticed when I'm doing automations is they say yes, but when we explain to them what it is during the journey and we need their time and they're not available and they don't have no one else to deputize to, then it's an issue for us to be able to progress this further. So I think it's got to make sure that stakeholders understand what they're getting into, what, how do, are they going to realize the benefits? Because it's all good to say, you're going to get these many FTEs saved, but how are you going to actually realize those benefits um, and, and uh, lessons learned from other projects that have been completed in the past? implementing those lessons learned, not just documenting them, but actually implementing those lessons learned uh, for future projects, I think is key. Thank you. Thank you. Anything to add, anyone, before we move on? No? Okay, perfect. Um, so Lisa, over to you, your question, how do we efficiently manage the automation pipeline of work amongst a much wider digital transformation program? So you've yeah. touched on this a little bit already. I have, I have, <laughs> and you can probably tell it's like my whole world um, <laughs> it makes it very hard to juggle stuff. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we, we do join into a demand board for a bigger digital program. Um, we have uh, new process requests. We have scoring matrices. Uh, we look at the benefits, the you know the complexity, where it links to all the other projects, what the resources involved, what the effort would be, um, virtual worker capacity required, all those kinds of things that we're trying to link in and then prioritise. But I'd just be really interested. You know, we only kind of know what we know within our own trust. So I don't know whether anyone has any suggestions where they, they're doing similar things and actually they found a really good way to balance it or to make sure you're included in the relevant conversations and um, just so that you know exactly what's going on. Because my worst fear is we create some automations, we put them in place and actually they're completely null and void and we, we've put our effort into the wrong thing so it's just making sure we close all those doors down that, that we need to thank you lisa uh, Naveed? yeah i think um from a from a program portfolio point of view i think it's ensuring that uh, not only the senior management but also the ground level um, staff um, either bind ones and the band twos are involved they understand because they're the ones who are actually going to be using these processes day in and day out so i think it's ensuring that they are uh, bought in as well they understand uh, what the project is all about, or the program is all about, so they can give their inputs as well. Because majority of the times you speak to the senior management and it gets lost in translation further down the line. Uh, we notice that uh, when we do our projects. So it, that's, I think that that would be key. Uh, understand the dependencies across the programs uh, and projects so that um, we're not duplicating any work. Uh, or you're doing something that the other person is doing another project of the same kind. So I think uh, those are the kind of things, uh, I'm sure those those are the bits that you would have covered are, are the, are, is what I can think of, is one should have a kind of a fortnightly meeting or a weekly meeting to ensure that um, all of our projects are in line and they're not uh, stepping onto each other's toes, if I may say. Thank you, Naveed. Sagal? Yeah, I, I, um, I think that's right. And um, I, I totally understand how um you know some some of it is exploration and i think at, at, um, we're not so good at that because we're very risk averse at the nhs and i think uh, you mentioned lisa that you come from a private sector and i think there's a bit more um opportunity there for innovation exploration fairly fast and 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 kind of investing then um we can get better at failing faster you know just uh, kind of realizing having a, a real solid criteria at the beginning and a matrix of what are the things that we we should uh, make the most impact 
maybe the ones that um, impact most patient a lot more patients or the ones that are going to save or um, or take us a lot more uh, cost um, efficiencies or, or save us money you know depending what the priorities are but having that matrix at the beginning can be really really clear because it's transparent for all the other stakeholders of why are we not investing in their projects you know when we have to say you know what we're starting with these five because they're the most important to us they're about a cancer waiting list or about um, merging our services so we can um, save money etc and then um, um, having a, a really clear proof of concept so it's an end-to-end maybe um, three months you know and we're saying okay we're investing this much this is a proof of concept and then we know if it really works and in some cases it will succeed in other cases it will fail but from the very outset you set it up the appealing people are willing to accept that that your exec board is bought into it that because because you set it up in the right way and I think that's really powerful and that's what we were able to do and prove value and sometimes fail fast. Thank you. Jonathan? What are your thoughts? I think I've got three things to say here. One is realism around suppliers. The second is the value of networking and education. And the third is around your organization's internal preparation for deployment projects. I'll start with the supplier. This is something I've seen a lot of, and I've seen it from both sides of the table when I work for suppliers and work for the NHS. It is not the supplier's job to deliver your project's aims. It's their job to deliver what's in the specification of the contract. To get your project where it needs to be, you cannot spend too much time understanding where you are today. So questions like, what is your level of digital literacy? What is your level of digital maturity? If those assessments have been done in your organisation, how long ago? If it's more than two years, you need to do them again. And you need to get your stakeholders lined up and on board uh, so they can make best use of this thing you're just about to spend a lot of resource deploying. Because otherwise you get a deployment of enthusiasts, a deployment in name only, uh, and nobody's using it. And what surprises me um, is how much effort suppliers put into getting clients to use the thing that they just bought to the fullest extent. You might think that's surprising, but actually they do put an awful effort, a lot of effort into that. And the other angle on this, it's not just internally, you've got to network outside your organisation as well. We're in a world of collaboration, uh, working across boundaries. It's very real and it's happening. That has to work with our information assets as well. Uh, and if somebody else is leading on an information asset deployment, you know, you've got to understand the extent of your engagement and how that works. So you can't just leave it to everyone else to get your assets in place. So that gets you to networking uh, and understanding what's going on out there, professional networking. And uh, dare I say it, podcasts like this, find the time to do it. It's good investment. Thank you, Jonathan. Any thoughts or comments to add before we move on to the final question? No? Perfect. Um, so last but not least, Jonathan, your question was around, so the, your angle is around engagement and transparency with stakeholders, clinical safety and efficiency of systems slash the burden on staff. Um, so whether compliance can compromise good governance. So what I have in mind here is the complexity of our deployment projects and all the competing um, demands on our time and resources. Now, 10 years ago in my field, very few people were talking about 
engaging with stakeholders and certainly nobody was talking about patient and public engagement in the context of information governance. That I'm pleased to say has changed. The HDR UK, uh, the experts on research, have now uh, been commissioned to do a programme uh, for patient engagement and that programme has started off uh, and the HRA, when looking at proposals, whether they be AI or anything else, will be looking to you to explain and demonstrate what engagement you have done with the public and the um, ultimate beneficiaries of your project. So keeping it light touch, despite all those things, is the great challenge. And one frustration I have is, uh, and I think it's changing in fairness, but one frustration I have is when people who are innovators, they are not by definition and by nature, they are not um, governance people. Very different mindset, very different skill set, very different experiences, and they find this difficult. So how do we how do we make it easier for those people, particularly in this new space where we're expected to bring people with us, particularly explaining things as we go to our ultimate users. Thank you, Jonathan. Tagal, what are your thoughts? I like that you pointed out that uh, the information governance people are very are the opposite maybe spectrum to uh, the innovators quite often, but they, those checks and regulations are really necessary and that's really, really helpful. Um, so actually bringing those groups together is really important uh, because the more uh, they understand each other, the more the innovators appreciate that actually we have the national opt-out that we have to consider, you know, and that needs to be part of their toolkit or uh, they understand that their, their information governance means that you can't, um, you know, access the data in a certain way or that you have to anonymize in another way, etc. So I think um, all those things are really, really important because especially if you're working with international suppliers, like you mentioned before, or um, applications and innovators, they, they're not necessarily familiar with the UK uh, law in terms of uh, information governance security. Um, so I think that's really important. On the other side, from the information governance people to understand how, you know, and to want to support the, the teams to deploy and use these technologies with the, with the right um, um, checks and balances in place is also really key. And I do find that more and more, there's a lot more understanding now on the IG side of all these uh, different technologies and, and what I found in my, um, you know, over over the past uh, years uh, working with IG and, um, uh, and information security um, um, colleagues is that they are very, very keen to, to try and resolve and use these technologies but they want to make sure that they comply with all the different uh, rules. And, and I think bringing those groups together, and um, you also mentioned the patient, um, the PPI, the patient engagement and um, involvement. Um, so I think uh, having those um, ethical data data um, committees that have patients in them to sign off some of these projects and, and, um, and some of these programs are really critical uh, for NHS providers uh, by getting that patient view in terms of what uh, you know and we are, we're all patients actually of the NHS as well which is very interesting um, so we have that view almost innate in us but it's really important to have that patient voice in the room as well when we're signing off on those projects uh, so I think um, uh, those are really powerful um, themes to get right uh, and I, I also liked um, what you mentioned Jonathan about the collaboration as a, as a whole you know more and more uh, NHS wide sort of projects to try and standardize 
guys and try and uh, put those frameworks in place and those really uh, great policies, but also practices in place, best practice that we can all share and learn from each other uh, is really important. So um, I think those forums of, of collaboration are uh, at, a, at a London and national level and uh, UK level are really important. So Thank you. Lisa, how about you? Um, I guess my thoughts are more sort of on a kind of operational level. I was just thinking very much as Jonathan was talking about some of the the initial challenges we had um, internally with launching some of our automations um, because some of those conversations hadn't happened. Um, and it, it's really interesting how that relationship has evolved. So we now have our security teams, our cyber teams, our IG teams, our data quality teams, all as part of our process. So um, we have regular meetings with them and we also have them as part of our approval process for every new automation. So we share with them the documentation at very low level and with summary uh, data to say this is what we're trying to achieve this is how we're trying to achieve it these are the systems these are the complexities these are the things that we think are going to cause us barriers and we have a discussion with them up front before we start building um, and approve that as a, as a process so that they can give direct input um, into what we're doing so we try to manage it very much at a low level because as I say it, it was a challenge and we learned we learned you know, quite the hard way, I would say, um, to start with. But the, but it works really well now. We've forged very good relationships with those teams. We meet with them regularly um, and we take into account that sometimes we don't proceed with an automation based on their feedback, you know, and we have that discussion as an operational or clinical team. Uh, but we look at maybe is there something else we can do? But we are also doing work for them as well. So it, it's really great that we have that relationship um now and for sure I think the other thing that you just touched on was around patience and in our current position although everything we do ultimately leads to a better patient experience and that's what the whole aim of what we do because we're looking at sort of operational team processing it should be seamless to the patient they should only get a more positive experience out of it so although we do share through our governors and things like that what we're doing in terms of a trust we don't actually have very very many touch points with patients themselves um, so that's given me food for thought um, and then the final piece really is around collaboration which a, a number of you have mentioned and this is something, again, we're starting to do much, much better. So we have monthly meetings with a couple of other trusts um, in the region. We are part of different forums that we attend um, as well. And the amount of learning and sharing of information that we get from those situations is, is fantastic. Um, and they offer a, a different because, you again, I'll say what I said earlier, you only know what you know. So unless and skill sets in this area are, you know, still quite hard to come by so if you can talk to people who have already been where you are or done what you've done or experienced what you're going through um sometimes it's difficult to see outside of the box isn't it for for what you need to do so yeah couldn't agree more thank you lisa Navid. yeah i think i, I second lisa's thoughts here um you have to i mean uh, in terms of the 
information governance uh, they're always there at the start of the project they are they're kind of the uh, the, the gatekeepers uh, making sure that the design is in line with the with the security controls that you have in place um so i think uh, the most important thing is uh, once you have the dsa in nda in place that you then engage with ig at the earliest i've always done that and i think that's the best practice to engage them at the earliest and have a data protection officer from the supplier end that you can liaise with and uh, get all of your cyber documents and ig documents completed through the journey and if there's any change in design that you make sure that the ig is informed and and, and get an authorization so i think uh, that makes the process much easier rather than engaging them at, 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 the, at the very end and say, yeah, we got, we got a project that's going live. Can you please take a look at it? I think uh, it, gone are the days. Uh, is not going to entertain that, and, and rightly so. Um, so I think it's, it's engaging at them at the very start. Here in Croydon, we do not start projects without IG involvement. Uh, we don't even start the design, to be honest. So it's very strict in terms of getting cybersecurity approval and getting IG approval. Uh, and once the design is completed, you get another approval and say, yeah, you got your, your controls in place for the for the project design. And, and then you proceed further. Uh, so I think it's just mitigating all of those potential security issues that you may have. Thank you. Any final thoughts from you, Jonathan? I, I found all the comments quite helpful, really. Um, one thing that's occurred to me as I was listening is that all of the pieces of feedback I've had are not one-off tasks. It's a cyclical, long-term engagement piece that you need to have in place there. Uh, so integration internally in, in, in the projects um, and thinking about business as usual right from the outset. Who's looking after this when the project's finished? Really helpful. Thank you very much. Before we end the podcast, I'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I am Ellie Fox and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at ellie.fox at evolution-contract.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.